Welcome. We have a fun topic lined up for you today. I'm going to be talking about famous philosophers who composed music on the side. And yes, believe it or not, there were philosophers who also wrote music in their spare time. Now, just to be clear what we're talking about today, I'm not talking about famous musicians who are also philosophers. There's really only one notable example of that, of a great composer who is also a philosophical thinker, and that was Richard Wagner. If you want to know more about him, you have to come to my Ocon talk. But today it's going to be a slightly different, but in a way related topic, which is famous philosophers who composed music. I'm going to go through these chronologically. So we begin in the 18th century, and our first philosopher is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Swiss-born French philosophe, contributor to the Encyclopédie, the first French language encyclopedia, famous for such books as Emile and The Social Contract. Rousseau didn't have very much in the way of formal musical training, but apparently in the 18th century, that wasn't much of an obstacle to being able to compose music, apparently. He, I think, played the keyboard and picked up a little bit of musical knowledge here and there. I think at one point he worked for a music publisher doing some transcriptions or other odd jobs. We know that Rousseau contributed to many of the musical articles in the Encyclopédie, and he also wrote a Dictionnaire de Musique, one of the first dictionaries of music in the French language. So he was clearly knowledgeable about the subject. Where Rousseau became particularly involved in French musical life was in the early 1750s. In the 1750s, there was this very brief, it was actually in 1753, there was this very brief press war which uh, historians have called the Querelle des Buffons, which means something like the War of the Buffoons. What precipitated this was an Italian comic opera troupe came to Paris and performed some very short, very simple Italian comic operas. And this gave rise to a really acrimonious debate, a, a, a debate about the relative merits of Italian music and French music. And there were all sorts of articles flying back and forth in which Rousseau participated. Uh, the interesting thing is that Rousseau took the side of Italian music, and he argued that French music was naturally artificial, that it was unnatural, that Italian music was more natural, more spontaneous, more melodic. And we have to understand that there was actually more to this than just aesthetics. There was more to this than just musical taste. Bear in mind that France in the 18th century was an absolute monarchy, and it was very dangerous to criticize authority, to criticize the establishment, particularly to criticize uh, the person of the, the king himself. And one way that thinkers and uh, social philosophers got around this was by criticizing particular institutions. So for example, criticizing the opera, criticizing the French opera was an indirect way of criticizing the institution and sort of indirectly attacking the monarchy and the status quo. And I bring this up to say that when we look at the various debates that frequently arose in 18th century French music, there's much more beneath the surface than Italian music versus French music or melody versus harmony. There were deep political roots to the debates, but they were carried on very covertly. 
so, so Rousseau participated in the War of the Buffoons, taking the Italian side. And one of his most interesting contributions from this period was not just the various articles, polemical articles that he wrote during this period, but in 1752, Rousseau actually wrote a little opera for which he wrote both the words and the music. And of course, because he was a Frenchman, he had to write the words in, in French. He wrote his own text, his own libretto, but he, he was deliberately trying to write it in what he took to be the style of an Italian comic opera. Very simple melodies, very natural declamation, everything very much simplified without the, the artificiality as he saw it of contemporary French music and contemporary French opera. So this little comic opera by Rousseau is entitled Le Devin du Village, which means the village soothsayer. And the story is as follows. It's about a young woman and a young man. Her name is Colette and his name is Colin. And at the beginning of the opera, Colette is distraught because she believes that Colin has abandoned her, that he's fallen in love with some highborn lady and is no longer interested in her. So Colette consults Guess who? The village soothsayer who tells her, you know, immortal advice here, if you want to win back Colin's affections, you have to pretend not to be interested in him. And if you do that, you'll drive him crazy and he'll come flocking back to you, which, of course, is exactly what happens. And the opera, predictably enough, ends happily. So a little excerpt that I'd like to play for you now, which comes from near the beginning of the first scene of the opera. This is Colette's aria, where she's expressing her despair at having been abandoned by her sweetheart, Colin. And Colette sings here, J'ai perdu tout mon bonheur, j'ai perdu mon serviteur, Colin me délaisse, which roughly translates, I've lost all my happiness, I have lost my sweetheart, Colin has abandoned me. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of this aria. for a philosopher with very little formal training in music. Actually, this example pinpoints an interesting difference between the 18th century and today. In Rousseau's day, it was expected that any educated citizen, anyone with any kind of uh, intellectual or cultural aspirations would have some knowledge of music. They would be able to at least sing, play an instrument, or read music. That was absolutely essential for any, any member of the monarchy or aristocracy, or indeed even for the middle classes. So even somebody who hadn't studied composition, stu hadn't studied music formally, would at least be able to read music and write music a little bit. By the way, there's a, an interesting little postscript to the story of Rousseau's opera, Le Devin du Village. So about a decade and a half later, so in uh, 17, 69, 
the 13-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart composed his first German comic opera entitled Bastien und Bastien, which actually tells the exact same story as Rousseau's opera. But it's a kind of, you could say it's a bit of a parody or a takeoff on Rousseau's earlier opera. And the interesting thing about Mozart's uh, opera, Bastien and Bastien, is that it premiered in Vienna in 1769, in the garden of Dr. Anton Mesmer, the famous hypnotist, the famous inventor of mesmerism. So that's move on now to the 19th century and to Friedrich Nietzsche, born in 1844, died in 1900. Now, when musicians talk about Nietzsche, the, the obvious connection here is his decade-long relationship, his decade-long friendship with Richard Wagner. Nietzsche was about 31 years younger than Wagner. Uh, when they first met, which was in 1868, Nietzsche was a 24-year-old professor of philology in Basel, Switzerland. Wagner by then was a world-famous composer who was hobnobbing with heads of state. Uh, King Ludwig of Bavaria was his official patron, so he was very much at the top of his career. And of course, what, what first brought Nietzsche and Wagner together was their common enthusiasm for Schopenhauer, whom Wagner had discovered in 1854. And by then, Nietzsche was reading widely in, in philosophy, including Schopenhauer. And at that time, he was very enthusiastic about that philosophy. Uh, so we know that Nietzsche spent many, many hours, probably hundreds of hours, as a guest of the Wagner family, first in Switzerland and later on at Bayreuth in Bavaria. And in fact, Nietzsche was present at the celebrated occasion where Wagner wrote and premiered the Siegfried Idyll, a little piece for chamber orchestra that he did, that he performed for his wife on the occasion of the birth of their son. So there was a lot of intimacy between Wagner and Nietzsche. And during the course of the 1870s, that relationship began to sour so that by 1876, which was the year of the the world premiere of The Ring of the Nibelung, Wagner's uh, magisterial four-part tetralogy, Nietzsche was already by then very, very sour towards his erstwhile uh, mentor and hero. And there's probably a number of reasons for this. There's certainly a lot of speculation about this. Certainly, the cooling of the relationship or the cooling of Nietzsche's ardor for Wagner as a person, as a friend, closely coincided with his gradually turning away from the philosopher, philosophy of Schopenhauer. And Nietzsche gradually began to reject a lot of the altruistic and pessimistic elements of Schopenhauer's philosophy in preference to his own ideas about the will to power, uh, his own ideas about the ego. And th there's actually also, there's another theory though about why Nietzsche eventually broke with Wagner and why after Wagner's death in 1883, Wagner began to quite publicly abuse the composer in his writings, like The Case for Wagner, Nietzsche contra Wagner, etc. I'll very briefly mention this story just because it's so amusing. So sometime in the early 1870s, so when Nietzsche and Wagner were still friends, Nietzsche consulted a physician in Switzerland, I believe, over his his eyesight. He was he was beginning to lose his vision. And I don't know the details, but apparently this physician, in an egregious breach of 
confidentiality, somehow got in touch with Wagner. He must have known that Wagner was a, a friend and a kind of a father figure to Nietzsche, reached out to Wagner and told him the, the situation. And Wagner concluded for this, aha, Nietzsche has to get married. Do you see the connection here? So this, this, this is going to sound like a joke, but in, in the 19th century, most people believed that the loss of eyesight was caused by an excess of onanism. So Wagner, hearing that Nietzsche was having problems with his eyesight, concluded that uh, Nietzsche needs to get married. And somehow Nietzsche found out about this. He probably must have visited the Wagners and some of the other people in the town must have been uh, snickering behind his back. And needless to say, that would have led to a feeling of betrayal. Now here, even though Wagner clearly behaved inappropriately by even corresponding with this physician on this subject, he was probably motivated by a genuine paternal concern for a young man who was at any rate three three decades younger than he was. But no doubt this breach of faith contributed to the gradual souring of their relationship. Many people may be surprised to know that Nietzsche's interest in music goes beyond his early infatuation with Wagner, but quite early in life and even in his later years, he composed some songs, some piano music, so we're going to listen now to a little excerpt of a piece by Nietzsche for chorus and orchestra entitled Hymn to Life. This is a piece composed sometime in the uh, 1880s, so around the time of Wagner's death or maybe a little bit after that. And it's actually not a bad piece. Clearly Nietzsche, Nietzsche had studied the work of the, of the master. Uh, he'd learned a little, a little something from his mentor. So clearly he knows how to write for a chorus and he knows how to write for an orchestra. This is Friedrich Nietzsche's Hymn to Life of 1883. So clearly this is not going to make anybody's top 10 list. It's not the most inspired music, certainly nothing compared to the music of Nietzsche's idol, but nonetheless, it's, it's workmanlike, it's competently written. I should mention that this piece actually exists in two versions. The original version, which was, was just with piano accompaniment, was called Hymn to Friendship. And then some years later, Nietzsche revised the piece and expanded the accompaniment to include orchestra. And at that point, he renamed it Hymn to Life. So there's actually two different but somewhat related pieces here. Let's just listen to a few more seconds.
I know it can be a little bit difficult to make out the actual words. The text here is in, in German. By the way, the story about Wagner's meddling in Nietzsche's medical affairs, that comes from a book by the British philosopher Brian McGee, also author of a, an important book on Schopenhauer. Uh, Brian McGee wrote a book on called Wagner and Philosophy, in which he devotes a whole chapter to the relationship between the elder philosopher between the elder composer and the young philosopher and that's where that particular story comes from again it's i don't think that provides a full explanation of the souring of the friendship between the two men but at least it provides probably a partial explanation along with nietzsche's gradual uh, feelings of revulsion towards schopenhauer over the course of the 1870s as he developed his own ideas his own way of thinking now we move on to the 20th century and to the philosopher Theodor Wiesengrund Adorno. Uh, so born in 1903, died in 1969. Adorno was a member of the Frankfurt School, along with Walter Benjamin, Max Horkheimer, and, um, oh, that other guy, uh, Herbert, Herbert Marcuse. And now, believe it or not, Adorno who's you know, best known for works like the Negative Dialectics and various works on sociology, was uh, he was a musical prodigy. He learned the piano at a very early age, and he, he really was a, a gifted pianist and musician. And he was a gifted composer. He already began composing music in his teens. And we'll listen to an example of some of his music in a moment. But Adorno had a lifelong engagement with music. He wrote widely on musical and sociological topics. In fact, I even gave a brief little talk on Adorno for Nikos's critical race theory course, in which we talked a little bit about the, the influence of the Frankfurt School on uh, social and philosophical movements of the 20th century. But so, so even after he became a sociologist and philosopher, Adorno continued to be very much interested in musical topics. He wrote a lot about the culture industry a lot about how Hollywood and popular music corrupt people's minds by making them anesthetized to all the injustices in modern capitalist society, blah, blah. You can see where this is headed. Uh, he was very critical of jazz. He was critical of popular music. He was also critical of certain contemporary composers like Igor Stravinsky, uh, whose neoclassicism Adorno completely rejected. He thought that music should, contemporary music should break with the past, break with the 19th century and all the earlier centuries and should forge its own identity. And if you look at Nietzsche, if you look at Adorno's own music, one thing that comes to very clearly is a strong sense of malevolence. Now, in a, in a way, I kind of think of Adorno as the Schopenhauer of the 20th century because his writings are concerned with Everything that's terrible in modern society, uh, the Second World War, the, the atomic bomb, the, the Holocaust, he, he focuses on everything. I think he was the one who famously said that after Hiroshima, how can we possibly enjoy beauty? One of the other members of the Frankfurt School, but that's, that's the general idea. After the atomic bomb, after the horrors of the Holocaust, how can we possibly enjoy art? How can we possibly celebrate beauty? That's a theme, that's an idea that comes up in a lot of the work of the Frankfurt School. And uh, I think a lot of that doom and gloom comes from Adorno himself. Now Adorno in the 1920s had been a pupil of Alban Baird, 
uh, a notable Austrian composer in his own right. And Alban Berg had been a pupil of, dare I even mention this name, Arnold Schoenberg. I know there are some people in this audience who have a bias or a predisposition against Schoenberg's music, which is unfortunate. There's, he actually wrote a lot of very good music, but that's a subject for another time. So Adorno was a pupil of a, a pupil of Arnold Schoenberg. And so if you don't like Schoenberg's music and the music of that particular school, the so-called second Viennese school, chances are you're probably not going to like Adorno's music, but then most of us probably don't like Adorno's philosophy. So in a way, there's a certain justice to this. Now, the piece that we're going to listen to was composed in the early 1930s, by which time Adorno had already settled in the United States. Of course, many of the members of the Frankfurt School left Europe during the, uh, the rise of Nazism, the rise of the Third Reich. Many of them were Jewish, so they settled in America, the belly of the beast, as they themselves would have put it. The interesting thing about this piece is uh, this is a piece, it's a song for voice and orchestra inspired by Mark Twain's Indian Joe. So the, the reference here is to a character in the novel Mark Twain. Although you probably won't know, you probably wouldn't guess that there was any connection with Mark Twain just on the basis of the music itself. So hold on, here's our, our first foray into 20th century modernist music. Theodore Adorno, a song from Mark Twain's Indian Joe. ask me what does negative dialectics sound like in music there you go actually i have to say in, in adorno's defense if you accept the aesthetics of the second viennese school and of early 20th century music he was actually a competent composer he was actually an accomplished composer i mean otherwise uh, a celebrated figure like alban berg would not have agreed to accept him as a pupil but of course uh, to many of us, this music is virtually unintelligible. And I, I don't know what Mark Twain himself would have made of it. I'm sure he would have thought of something witty to say. Before we go on to our fourth and final composer, let me just briefly check in with our producer, Daniel. Do we have any super chats at this point? Yes, we have a couple of super chats. So first, thank you, Jonathan. He sent a super sticker. Uh, also, thank you, Marie-Aline. Uh, thank you, Christopher, and thank you, Marilyn. Again, she says, sounds like religious music. Presumably referring to the Nietzsche example there, uh, I'm guessing, uh, which that's something that actually struck me when I listened to the the, the, the earlier example, the Nietzsche example, which was the, uh, the hymn to life. I thought this sounds, for, for a philosopher who was an atheist, the first really famous, really uh, openly atheistic philosopher, right? God is dead, uh, etc. Uh, this music sounds awfully like, uh, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it sounds like Bach, but it's, it certainly sounds like 
Brahms's German Requiem or Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. It definitely has that sort of quality to it. And I find that interesting. Of course, there were other earlier philosophers who, who were probably atheist. I'm thinking specifically of people like Ludwig Feuerbach and Arthur Schopenhauer himself, but they didn't, even though they, they critiqued religion and, and Christianity more specifically, they never explicitly came out as atheists. To the best of my knowledge, Nietzsche was the first to do that. And of course, he proved to be hugely influential precisely for that reason. But very strange that a philosopher like Nietzsche would write a piece which sound, on the surface sounds so churchy. Of course, nobody would make that claim about the Adorno piece we just listened to. Uh, now, speaking of uh, religious philosophers, now we come to my fourth and final philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton, born in 1944, died in 2020, so quite recently. Roger Scruton was a conservative British philosopher and writer on aesthetics, and he wrote widely on all aspects of aesthetics, on literature. Uh, he wrote a lot on education, the role of the role of the arts in education. Uh, he wrote no less than three books on Wagner, who I, I guess was one of his favorite composers. Of course, philosophers tend to be obsessed with Wagner. That's not at all surprising. Uh, so he, he wrote a book on Tristan and Isolde. He wrote a book on the Ring of the Nibelung. And then his third book on Wagner, on Parsifal, was published posthumously just uh, within the past couple of years. Now, Scruton was I would say one of the better contemporary philosophers. He was, a, 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 even though we may disagree with him on many, many things, he was certainly one of the few philosophers in recent decades who has come out as a critic of the woke, of a lot of the nonsense of political correctness and censorship. So he, he had a lot of good ideas. And then some of his ideas were not so good, as you would expect from someone who identified as a conservative. And, but uh, nonetheless, he, he was a clear thinker. He he wrote very clearly, even though he, he was a very good philosopher. He wrote a lot of books for a general audience, books that are that are readable and quite valuable and interesting. And Scruton composed two operas. Uh, one of his operas is entitled The Minister, and the other one is entitled Violet, which is apparently a story of a classical harpsichord player, uh, a, a woman who was a famous harpsichord player from the uh, 18th, or no, from the 19th century. But the piece by Sir Roger Scruton that we're going to listen to is a setting of a poem by Federico Garcia Lorca, uh, a Spanish poet who was very, very popular with, with 20th century composers. Many, many composers have set his poetry. So here is now a song by Sir Roger Scruton to a poem by Federico Garcia Lorca. And I think you'll uh, find this much, much more enjoyable than the Adorno example we listened to a minute ago.
So actually quite a lovely and charming song. Clearly, Sir Roger was a philosopher who knew a thing or two about music. In a sense, uh, continuing the tradition from Jean-Jacques Rousseau up to the present. Let's listen to just another little snippet from this Garcia Lorca song. I wasn't able to find any clips from uh, Roger Scruton's two operas, The Minister and Violet, but I did read and, and find out that apparently he wrote the words and the music for those operas, which of course puts Sir Roger squarely in the tradition of his mentor, Richard Wagner, who wrote the texts for all of his own operas as well. Well, I wanted to keep this episode short, light, and entertaining. So before we sign off, let me just briefly check in with Daniel one more time. Any final super chats or comments from our audience? Yes, we have a super chat from Mary Ellen. Thank you so much. She says, Scruton and Douglas Murray were good friends, I believe. Scruton believed beauty was important. Yes, yes, absolutely. And actually, if you saw any of the clips from the recent convention on national conservatism, which was held in London, UK. Douglas Murray was one of the keynote speakers. Uh, and I think he he's talked a little bit about beauty, the role of beauty in aesthetics. And I believe Scruton himself has given keynote speeches in previous years at these national conservatism conventions. So yeah, clearly Scruton and Murray moved around in similar circles. They had similar views on a number of ideological and aesthetic and political topics. Well, thank you all very much for joining me today. Um, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Daniel, are there any announcements for upcoming episodes? Yes, in uh, 30 minutes, there's going to be the Fountainhead Book Club that's available for uh, Ayn Rand Center UK members. And the session will also be live streamed to YouTube members. The link to the YouTube video is in the chat. Okay, thank you, Daniel. And I believe tomorrow is going to be a solo Nikos episode. So that's certainly something I'm looking forward to. I always love any topics that he discusses. So thank you again very much for joining me. I wish you all the best of premises and happy listening. See you next time.